0: Matthew 7, and as we see Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, we are to those words in verses 7 through 11, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you, who when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? These are familiar words. Give, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek see, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. You notice in this text, the word give is mentioned in each of these verses. There's a lot of emphasis on God's giving. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And the promise is made... A pro, that's a profound promise that's made in verse 7 and verse 8. Everyone who asks, receives, he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it shall be opened. That is a profound promise. But there are often profound promises made in connection to prayer. For example, in Matthew 21. Matthew 21 in verse 22. After Jesus had caused the fig tree to wither. He says, all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. All things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Same context in Mark 11 and verse 24 In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Whatever we ask, we receive. Ask and it shall be given to you. See and you shall find. In 1 John 5 and verse 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the request which we have asked from Him. Has that always been true in your experience? That whatever you ask, you receive. Whenever you knock, the door was open. Has that been true in your prayers to God? There's one man whose name I could call, and most of you would recognize him, who started out his life as a very religious person, was associated with some of those television programs that were on late at night uh, talking about the Bible so many years ago. And yet, over time, he became an unbeliever. He said the turning point was because at one point in his life, he had prayed for someone close to him to get better from a sickness and they didn't recover. Did God's promise fail Or was something else going on in that situation? We'll explore that more in a moment. But I want you to notice what the text says in verse 9. What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf or asks for bread will give him A stone, or when he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Bread and bread and fish were staples of those people's diet. You remember when Jesus uh, sends the disciples throughout the crowd to see if there's any food if the feed of the five thousand, they find a boy with five loaves, two fish. That was a staple to their diet. And when your son asks for something that's good, like well, bread, you're not going to give him a stone. When he asks for something that's helpful, like a fish, you're not going to give him something destructive, like a serpent. And the Bible says, "...if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him?" Now, this doesn't mean we're born in sin. It doesn't give any indication of why we're evil, whether that is by birth or whether that is by practice. The Bible is emphasizing through this is the fact that compared to God's holiness, none of us are compared and all of us are evil. Now I want you to look at verse 11 closely. Notice that Jesus is distinguishing between himself... And us, if you then being evil, Jesus is not grouping us in a category with Himself in that particular passage. You remember in Mark ten, in verses uh, Mark ten verses seventeen and eighteen, where a man came before Jesus and said, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said, "Why do you call me good? No one is good." We said, God. Compared to God's holiness, we are evil by comparison. And the Bible says the Lord looked down from heaven to see if there were any who sought God, and there is none good, no, not one. Psalm 14, verses 1-3. through 3. Now, we're going to deal with that question I asked in connection with verse 8. But we're going to deal with that as part of a bigger theme here that is particularly prominent in the Sermon on the Mount. Have you noticed how frequently in this Sermon on the Mount... God has been revealed as Father. Though there are some 12 or 13 references behind me on this slide to times in the Sermon on the Mount, God is referred to as Father. It is not as frequent outside of this series of sermons. In Matthew 18, verse 35, the term is used there. Now, I want to give you what I'm about to say with an asterisk and with a question mark. And if I have missed this, then uh, forgive me and I'll try to straighten this out. This is a quotation I read. A quotation I read from Jack Lewis. He said, and I didn't have every source with me or every tool with me that I like to be able to use this week when I was writing this. So he said, this stands out. These references to God as Father stand out because God is only called Father one time in Mark, in Mark 11 25, and no occurrences in Luke. Now, I say put an by it or a question mark beside it. Because I was looking at the parallel passage in Luke 11, verse 13, and it does mention your heavenly Father. He may be wrong in that specific, but I'm trying to create a picture that Matthew, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount, stresses a great deal this idea of God as Father. And what is the significance of this particular concept? One of the things that is highlighted by this concept, and it's particularly in the text that we read today, is that God loves us so intensely. The Bible says your son is not going to ask you for bread and you turn around and give him a stone. Your daughter is not going to ask you for a fish. And you're going to give to her a say. You're not going to do that. And the argument is, from a lesser to the greater, if we, in spite of all our failures and all our sins and shortcomings, if we wouldn't dare do that to our children... How would God do that to us? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Sometimes when the Bible wants to highlight the love of God, it emphasizes God is Father. That is a way to highlight His love. For example, in Psalm 103, the Bible is talking about God's grace and abundant kindness. His mercy that He has shown to the people of Israel. And it makes this statement. This is Psalm 103, verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. That is. Uses the Father's love as a comparison to our Heavenly Father's love. I want to tell you something. When I have children, my respect for my parents. Increased greatly. Because. As I thought about How deeply I loved my children. I understood. That that's the same way. That they loved me. If each of us. Was confident. That God loved us like our children. I think our hearts could be rejoicing. Sometimes the Bible uses a father's love for a son as a comparison to God's love. But sometimes the Bible emphasizes that God's love far surpasses that love. It is not just that God loves us like a father loves a child. God loves us beyond what any father could love his child. As a human being, as an evil human being, my capacity to love is not as intense as God's capacity to love. If you, then being evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give what is good to those who ask Him? Now, a couple of passages I want to particularly use to highlight this. One uses the father's love as an illustration. One uses the mother's love. But both of them show that God's love surpasses either one of these ideals. In Psalm chapter 27, or Psalm 27, Psalm 27, in verse 9, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. But it's verse 10 that I was particularly wanting to stress. Psalm 27, 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. He begs God not to abandon him nor forsake him. And he says that his father and mother have forsaken him. But the Lord will take him up. The father's love, the heavenly father's love for us surpasses any love that a father has for his son. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah 49 and verse 15 Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Those are profound questions. And that's a profound illustration. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. But I will not forget you a mother who's giving birth to a child and who's drawn to that child, she will abandon that child before God will abandon us. If you can relate to what I said earlier, if the birth of children led you to appreciate your parents even more, How much more should the birth of children lead us to appreciate God's love even more? God loves us beyond what the best parent does for his children. God as Father emphasizes the love of God. But also throughout this Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it is emphasized that God has intimate knowledge of us. God has intimate knowledge of us and who we are. Look at Matthew 6. Look at the passages on the slide. Matthew 6 and verse 8. Let's start with verse 7. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now this whole context is encouraging prayer and Jesus gives the disciples a model of how to pray in Matthew 6 and verse 9. But it is telling us that prayer is not for the purpose of informing God of our needs. It's not doing that. That may be the way that Gentiles pray. That's not the way that we pray because the Bible teaches us that your Father knows your needs before you ask Him. He has intimate knowledge of you and your needs in verse 32, Matthew 6, verse 32. Let's start with verse thirty-one. Do not worry, then, saying, "What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear for clothing?" For your for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. In the same context, where the image of a father is used to assure us of God's love, the image of a father is also used to tell us that the father has intimate knowledge of the son now I particularly want to tie these two things together to some of the verses we have in the slide Matthew 21 22. Mark 11-24 1 John 3-22 1 John 5 13-15 and we could add other passages to that list. Passages that make sweeping promises in regard to prayer. What if you pray and God doesn't answer? Does it mean God doesn't want? God loves us. God is it? of no. what we need. Do you think there's ever been a point in your life where you have asked for a stone, and the Father has given you bread? Or you have asked for a snake, and the Father has given you a fish. Now, I'm not making a mistake when I'm saying that. I'm intentionally wording it that way. No, God is not going to give us a stone when we ask for bread. And God is not going to give us a snake when we ask for a fish. But sometimes we may not know what we need in this world. We may not know what is in our best interest. We can see such a small sphere of right here and right now and cannot see the overarching picture. And there may be times that you have asked for a stone. God has given you bread instead. And listen. If you are living in the process of this right now, if you're living in the process of pouring out your heart about something and the prayers are not being answered the way that you want them to be answered, I know that is a difficult thing. And I know that that can create an emotional struggle with us and our faith. Quite am confident that many of you have experienced the same thing I have. That one moment you prayed for something intensely it wasn't answered, you're shattered and you wonder what happened and you wonder why God didn't answer only to find at a later point in time that God's answer was in your best interest all along. We see that sometimes right here, right now. How many times do you think that happens that we can't ever see that in this life? God has intimate knowledge of you, God is Father. Emphasizes His love. It emphasizes that He knows us thoroughly. And He will not fail to give us any good thing that leads us to the goal. I preached a few lessons on heaven when we first got into this building. But do you remember that passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 17? It was not only that the troubles and the hardships and the difficulties that Paul experienced were just part of this life. But the Bible tells us that they somehow work and bring about the exceeding glory. That sometimes the pressure and the pain may conform us to His image. Now, those two parts of the sermon, those two points in the sermon, emphasize God as Father for who He is. And in light of who He is, we live how we do. The the other points are going to emphasize our response to God as Father. First of all, When we understand this idea as God is Father and God who knows everything about us, it is His approval that we seek. We are humble, dependent children with eyes to our Father. And if our Father is displeased, it doesn't matter who else is pleased. And if our Father... It's pleased. It doesn't matter who else is displeased. In verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But He tells us to give not in a way to call attention to ourselves, but to give quietly and secretly in verse 4, so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. As we stated when we're going over these passages, that understanding God as our Father and God whose approval we seek, it frees us of the responsibility to try to please everybody else. We have a single-minded focus of pleasing Him. As you've studied in John 12 or John, there's a passage in John 12, 42 and 43 that among the rulers, many believed in Jesus. Many believed in Jesus. But they did not confess Him for fear of the Jews. The Jews said, whoever confesses Him will be cast out of the synagogue in the stateless man. They love the approval of men more than the approval of God. How can anyone do that? How can anyone love the approval of men so much that they will not confess Jesus as the only way of salvation even though they know it's true? The fact that people existed like that now, I suppose there are people that exist like that now. That then, I suppose it's true that they exist like that now. There are people who know it. As there's a sign in northern Georgia that I love it says on a secular business it has a sign up there it says Jesus is Lord and you know it you know it is true and I think there probably are a lot of people who know it but who won't say it. Because they love the approval of man more than the approval of God. How does anybody get to that step? Anytime we play to the crowd and are trying to please them instead of pleasing God, we are taking a wrong road, a wrong step down that road. But I'll tell you another application of God as Father. The application of God as Father is used to emphasize how we need to forgive one another. Look at Matthew 6 verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father, and that's why we're incorporating this verse today, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. God is our Father. And God will forgive. If we forgive. If we refuse to forgive. The Bible says, our Father will not forgive. The same point is made in Matthew 18, verse 35. This is the verse that we mentioned from Matthew today outside of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. My heavenly Father will also do the same for you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. Now, why emphasize that God is a God God is our Father in a context to emphasize forgiveness. 1 John 5 verses 1-3 through three, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the children born of Him. By this we know We love the children of God. We love God and keep His commandments. And by the way, in First John, that's stated both ways. We know we love the children of God when we love God. We know when we love God, we love His children. And the text says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Does it hurt you as a parent when your children don't get along? Does it hurt you as a parent when your children fight? Does it hurt you as a parent when that fighting is not even a small squabble but grows to be? Is that painful? To appear. And our Father calls us to forgive. Our Father calls us to forgive our fellow children of His. And the fact that God is our Father. We surrender to His will. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, in the Gospel of John, you all have seen several times where Jesus emphasizes... Jesus emphasizes that He came not to do His own will, but the will of His Father. In John 4, in verse 34, you see that idea. In John 5, in verse 19, you see that idea. In John 6, in verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus, as God's Son, is doing the will of His Father. Father And we, as his children, knowing that he loves us, and knowing that he knows what is best for us, surrender to his will. Let's take this father-child analogy against it. Have you ever told your children something that they didn't understand? They didn't understand the purpose of it. They didn't understand the reason for it. But you knew it was for their good, even though it was beyond their ability to understand it. Sure. Sure we have. If that is true of us, how much more is it true of God? We may look at some of the instructions that are given in Scripture or some of the things that God has said, and we may say, I don't see a purpose. But when we listen to what God says, it will draw us closer to Him. When we do what God says, it will draw us closer to Him. If there are things we tell our children that they don't understand, But it's going to work for their good. Should we be surprised that that be true of our Heavenly Father? And we again are humble, obedient children who surrender to what He says and who seek to glorify Him. As Matthew 5 and verse 16 says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. How we act reflects upon our Father. How we act reflects upon our Father. And the Bible tells us there is a certain conduct that is becoming to God's children in this sermon. In Matthew 5 and verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They're sons of God. They're showing the character of God. In Matthew 5, in verse 43, You shall love your neighbor. You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, who causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. When you act like this, You are sons of God who does the same thing. How we act reflects upon our father. In John 8, some of the Jews claimed Abraham is our father. Jesus said, you're seeking to kill me. Abraham didn't do that. You are of your father, the devil. If we... Our peacemakers, if we love our enemies, we are bringing glory to our Father. That others may see our good works and glorify Him with us. These are some uses of the word Father in the Son of the Man." We started this sermon by reading the words of Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be open. That word knock is used less than 10 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used of literal knocking. You remember when Peter came to the house when the Christians were praying for him in Acts 12? And a couple of times it's emphasized in that context. He was knocking at the door. Literally knocking at the door in Acts 12 verse 13 and verse 16. Knock and the door shall be opened is what God said. But listen to one of the times this word knock is used. Revelation 3.20 To the church at Laodicea Jesus said Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. God loves you and God knows what is your best, for your best. And God has instructed us in ways that if we listen will draw us closer to him. God will answer when we knock Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and knocking and whether you will open is your decision he will not overwhelm you he loves you but you must surrender your will to his will he stands at the door and knocks. And for the one who opens the door, Jesus will come and dine with him. He will have intimate fellowship. If you understand your sin, and you want to turn from it, repentance, and you want to answer that knock upon your door to be baptized into Christ. We invite you to say, to come to say.